you have a copy of scriptures, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. We will be studying verses 36 through 44. If you're here this evening, I know there's at least a couple new people. Jeremiah is an interesting book. As we've been studying, this seems the first 28 chapters are gloom and doom. You get done at chapter 33 and you get more gloom and doom. But right in the middle of it is this chiastic structure where you get a lot of hope and promise. First part of Jeremiah, you see promises and you see hope, but it's like a medicine dropper, breadcrumbs. And when you make it to the center of Jeremiah, you see it like a fire hydrant. A lot of hope, a lot of promise. They call it the book of consolation. And we're in a section of Jeremiah where Jeremiah is actually in jail, which we'll get to that, I think, in chapter 38. But he's in jail. The army of Babylon has surrounded Jerusalem. They are trampling through all the outskirts and the, and the outskirts areas, and they're camping all surrounding Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar is about to own the promised land. He's about to own it. It's going to be his. And God tells Jeremiah to purchase a piece of property in the promised land, which people are thinking, this makes no sense. It's worthless, Jeremiah. Why would you spend the last money that you have on purchasing a piece of property? Four weeks ago, we, we, we heard how Jeremiah purchased the property and all of us left like, yeah, we're going to go do something amazing for the Lord. And then what's the first thing Jeremiah does? He says, oh no, I made a huge mistake. I'm doubting. And he goes straight to doubt and straight to praying. And God responds to Jeremiah because he's doubting. Did he make the right decision? He stepped out in faith. He obeys God. And this is where we are. God reminding Jeremiah, yes, the army's here. Yes, the property's not worth anything. But you didn't make a bad decision. You trusted in me. You did what I called you to do. This is verse 36 to 44. Just a little reassurance that Jeremiah needs, and I think all of us need reassurance from God that when we're serving him, he hasn't forgotten us. So let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of Jeremiah 32, and let's ask the Lord to teach us something about Christ in this passage. Father, we come before you knowing that unless you do something in our hearts, we are incapable of seeing you in this passage. So, Father, we come before you as humble servants, asking, O oh God, that your Spirit would illuminate this passage to our hearts and minds. We pray that we would see your Son, Christ. We know that all your Scripture is about Christ. We pray that we'd be encouraged. We pray that if someone doesn't know you, even from the smallest child, that you would regenerate their hearts. You have that power, and we ask you to do so. If someone needs encouragement, if they have no assurance, so God, we pray that you would give them the assurance of the faith that only you can give. As you helped Jeremiah and assured him, we pray that you would assure us, O God. We praise you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Jeremiah 32, verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, 
and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin. And the place is about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. And thus sends the reading, the very words of God. Many of you have heard of Princeton University. Its history is quite unique because it started as a little log college. People were tired of sending their ministers over to Cambridge and to Edinburgh and a man named William Tennant started this little log college, which eventually turned into the College of New Jersey and Princeton. And, and what they're really famous for is having the most intelligent professors that you could find. You could go to other colleges, but there was none as prestigious as Princeton Seminary. Of course, one of their keynote professors, of course, was Jonathan Edwards, then John Witherspoon, A.A. Alexander, Charles Hodge, and A.A. Hodge. And A.A. Hodge died, and the seminary didn't have to poll who's going to be the next keynote professor. They knew exactly who they were going after. They were going after a man named B.B. Warfield. And if you know anything about B.B. Warfield, he was a savant. He was born to very wealthy cattle farmers. Right? They were cattle farmers. They were very, very wealthy. They had enough money to hire professors from the university to teach him as he's nine and ten. He's already knows Latin, he knows Greek, he's, he's learning German, he's learning other languages. They're like, this is a savant. And he loved Jesus. Loved, loved Jesus. And the Lord called him to ministry. He goes off to college and seminary, but, but he meets this girl from his hometown named Annie. And they fall in love. And they thought, you're the smartest person I know, you're People are going to want you to teach and preach all over. So he thought to himself, I could be a pastor, I could be a professor, we can travel the world, we can see the world, and we can teach people about Jesus, we can have a house full of children. And they had all these plans to do all these things with all their gifts. Annie also came for money, by the way. Her, her father was an attorney who actually was an attorney for Abraham Lincoln at one time. And they had money, they had the tools, they had everything to do everything they ever wanted in the world. And B.B. Warfield had graduated and he went to Germany to, to study under these two scholars. 
And he wanted to understand a lot of the German history and theology. He spoke German fluently, and he and his wife were in the mountains at that time, and there was a thunderstorm that came. And we don't know the exact history, but we know that either lightning struck his wife or she was in some type of thunderstorm and she became almost an invalid that day. They eventually got her home. He took a position there in Pennsylvania as a professor. And eventually, when A. Hodge died, Princeton called him. And he moved to Princeton. And it's been known that all the years of Princeton that he stayed, he was never able to travel. He was never able to have kids. His wife needed attention and care constantly, and he was always at her bedside helping. Sometimes they were able to travel to the mountains maybe once every 10 years. This was not the life he signed up for. It didn't seem that this is the giftedness that God has given him. He has to sit in the, in, in the college of Princeton constantly. This is not what Annie signed up for. And you know what they're thinking because you thought the same thing. Has God forgotten us? Does God really mean good? Is he all wise? That Romans 8.28 we learned in Sunday school. Does God really work all things out for the good? Does he really do that? Jeremiah is asking the same question. God, have you forgotten us, your people? It seems that Babylon's about to destroy our city. And it's hard for a Jewish person to think, how could God bless us when there is no temple, when there is no city walls, when everything's destroyed? How can God bless us? Is he still good? And God is going to reassure Jeremiah, I am still good and my purposes will stand. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to see five things in this passage. But the first thing I want you to see is the severity of God. It's very humbling when you read what happens to this city because it's pretty severe. And I want you to see the severity of God. The second thing I want you to see is the kindness of God. God is very, very kind. Third thing I want you to see is the fear of God. Fourth thing is the everlasting covenant of God. And the fifth thing is the restoration of God. The severity of God, the kindness of God, the fear of God, the everlasting covenant of God, and the restoration of God. And you look at the severity of God. Paul is very clear in Romans 11. And a lot of what's going on in Jeremiah's day is happening in, in, in the book of Romans. The Jews are seeing that the gospel is now spread out. And God has taken Gentiles and he is grafting them in to the one lineage of Jesus. So we can all sing Father Abraham, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Abraham is your father because you have the faith of Abraham and the Jews are thinking, but what about the promises? What about David's promises? What about Abraham? What about the land? Have you forgotten us? And Paul reminds the people, you must remember the kindness and severity of God. Kindness to those who continue to believe, but severity to those who reject Jesus. And the question that Paul is answering is God really going to punish people forever who reject Jesus? I mean, that seems kind of severe, God. Are you really just going to push people away because they've rejected you and all of your promises? That seems a bit 
severe? Will God actually judge the guilty? This is, this is something Jeremiah is trying to put inside of the mind of the people. That God will punish sin. God will punish the guilty. We see it all throughout scriptures. When the people of Joshua, when the people of God came out of the promised land, Moses didn't make it, Joshua was raised up, they're going to go in and conquer the land. It was severe. I don't know if you've read Joshua. It's severe. They can make a movie out of it. I mean, it is severe how they drove the, the Canaanites and the Malachites and all those wicked, idolatrous people because God is going to be holy and live in the land as a holy God. It was severe. And what God is teaching his people is, is he is still that same God. He still demands holiness in the land. If God is going to dwell in the land, the land must be holy. The same way if God is going to live inside of you, you must be holy. We read this in verse 36. Now therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. You remember siege warfare. Keeps coming up in the book of Jeremiah. The sword, the famine, and pestilence. When they surround the city, there's nothing going in and nothing going out. No food going in, no waste going out. People are getting sick in the city. They're famished. They're almost half dead when the army comes in. It's not a real fight. And for a Jew to understand that God would actually discipline the people by having another city destroy the city of Jerusalem and exile them to Babylon... That's just a foreign thought to them. And let's not judge them because it's a foreign thought to a lot of Americans, is it not? I mean, would God actually judge our nation? We've been in existence since 1776. That's just when we declared it. But, I mean, would God really do this to us? Well, you need to understand that God is so serious about sin that he punished his own son for sin. This is how holy God is. God crushed his son for sin. This is how we are holy. He can live in us because his son was punished for us. So God does the holy war within us first so he can live with us. But the, but the message is still true. God is not to be trifled with. There's a severity to God when it comes to sin that we must take seriously, which brings us to the second part of the sermon, which is the kindness of God. We do see God's anger and wrath poured out upon Christ, but his anger does not last forever. As a matter of fact, Psalm 103.9 says, God will not be angry forever. And if you remember the seven sayings of Christ, he says seven different sayings about his mom and about forgiving them and Today you should be with me in paradise. And before he says, into thy hands I commit my spirit, he, he says three words that we all know very well. He says, it is finished. The wrath of God has been satisfied. The wrath of God was absorbed on Christ. God does not 
stay angry forever. Look at verse 37. Look how kind God is. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, in my wrath, and in my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. Remember, they didn't deserve to be in the land. It was so bad, they started sacrificing children to Molech. There was idols everywhere. We talked about at a fairground, when you leave, you got all the trash everywhere. When they were driven out, there was idols everywhere. This is how bad the land had gotten. They didn't deserve any of this. Just like we don't deserve Christ. But God is so kind. He says, I'm going to bring them back. Remember, what Babylon did was not arbitrary. It was a part of God's love and his disciplining hand. We have to understand this about God. He will discipline those whom he loves. And he loved these people. And he wanted the land to be holy. And for the Jewish mindset to think, does God really love us while we're in Babylon? Do you remember that famous passage in Jeremiah 29? We preached it. This is the famous passage that says, For I know the plans that I have to you, plans to prosper to you, to give you a future and a hope. I think we forget that passage is for people who are questioning God. Have you abandoned me? I'm in Babylon. I'm not at my home. And God says, listen, you're going to be in Babylon. Go ahead and buy a piece of property. Go ahead and build some houses. Go ahead and tell your children to get married, have some grandchildren, because you're going to be there a while. But what God is doing is preparing them to have faith. No more literal presence until Jesus Christ comes. No more Shekinah glory. No more massive, beautiful temple like Solomon had. Now you get the what? Trailer Park Temple, right? This is the reason Haggai had to come and tell them, hey, listen here, I know it's not the same, but you got to keep moving. You got to be building this temple. You, got, you have to do what the Lord has called you to do. He's prepping them for the sun. He's prepping them to have faith. He's reminding them that you are justified by faith. And look at verse 38. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now, this should make you think for a second, because typically the way it's said is, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And you may think, why is this reversed? You know, uh, often thought of uh, Jacob and Ephraim and Manasseh, where he crossed the hands. I'm going through all things in my mind. Why did he cross it up this time? Why is it said differently? I thought about it. It's said twice differently in Jeremiah than is typically said throughout the scriptures. And my mind started to think, Travis, it doesn't matter. And here's the reason it doesn't matter. Because of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon 6.3 says, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. Because if you have Christ, then Christ has you. And if Christ has you, then guess what? You have Christ. Union with Christ. It goes both ways. You can't have one without the other. You can't be God's without you having God. God can't have you without you having Him. It works both ways. I think this is why it's crossed up. I don't know that for sure, but I'm pretty sure it preaches, right? At the end of the day, you can't have one without the other. If you have Christ, then Christ has you. And if Christ has you, 
You have Christ. Which brings us to the third part of the sermon, which is the fear of God. Now, I don't know if you study heretics, but it's good to study heretics because if you don't study heretics, you kind of don't know the truth. And I would say the most famous heretic of all time is probably Arius. He was the one that really believed that Jesus was not God. And you think of the Mormons and the cults and the Jehovah Witnesses. They're just following suit. We sang the Gloria Patri. That song actually came from Arius because the Christians used to stand across the river and sing that to the Arians. No, glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. They are God. Equal in substance, power, and glory. They would sing that song to all the, all the Arians that, that did not believe Jesus was God. Very popular. We talk about Arius. You've heard of it. But he's not the most successful. As a matter of fact, there's a heretic that was so successful, he was excommunicated in 144, A.D. 144. And today, to this day, people are still following his teaching in the evangelical church. There's a heretic named Marcion. And Marcion taught this view that the God of the Old Testament was mean and harsh, and you should fear him. But the God of the New Testament is nice, and he casts out all fear, and he's loving, and he's kind and compassionate. And to this day, evangelical preachers will get up there and say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he was this way, and the God of the New Testament is this way. There's one God. There's one scripture. The same God in the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. The same God in the Old Testament who exiled his people is the same God of the New Testament. The same God that you see in Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, you have seen me. Everything you see in Jesus, you see in the Father. And here we see a passage of Scripture that tells us that we have to fear God. That's just not an Old Testament teaching. As a matter of fact, it's often within the New Testament. We see it all throughout the New Testament to, to fear God and to keep His commandments. Satan wants us to create a God in our mind that is either angry and harshful. He's so mean. This is, I'm on tape to say this, but it's the Roman Catholic God, right? They're always afraid. He's mean and harsh. Maybe Jesus' says, mom would listen. That's the attitude of Rome. God is harsh and he's mean. Or what do you have the other people, the other side of the evangelical fence says what? God's like Santa Claus. He's going to give me whatever I want. He'll never tell me what to do because he wants me to be happy. God wants us to fear him. And people try to change that word. So modern day translations, it really means reverence. No, we'll see reverence, fear. We see that in Hebrews. It's the two words used together. It, it means fear. It means what it means. Look at verse 39. I will give them one heart and one way. This is just a recapturing of Jeremiah 31, 31-34, the New Covenant promise. Probably one of the most famous passages in Jeremiah. The days are coming where well, I will give them a new covenant. I will, I will make them have one purpose, one mind. He says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of the children after them. A part of the promise of the new covenant is you will have 
the fear of God inside of your heart. Isn't that interesting? We know many of the other promises, the blood of the covenant, we understand that, but it's the fear of God that will come inside of their hearts. And you have to ask the question, well, what is the fear of God? Remember, Marcion of Sinope, that's where he's from, he wants you to believe that the God of the Old Testament, you don't have to fear him. The God of the New Testament is really nice. No, 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 no. We have to fear God, but there's an ungodly fear. Right? Do you remember in Genesis, do you remember when Adam and Eve were created? They talked with God and walked with God. There was not even a need for a mediator. They went straight to God. Perfectly holy, righteous. Never sinned one time. And then the serpent comes. She and he is convinced to eat of the fruit that was forbidden and they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and they knew there was a wide chasm between them and God. They knew that the holy God of the universe was holy, and they knew that they were the greatest sinners that lived on the earth. And God said, where are you? And what did Adam say? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, so I hid. See, that's ungodly fear. Because they did not have the regeneration of the Spirit yet, they were afraid, so they ran. You see this often with heretics. You see it with atheists. You see it especially with those professors in college when they say there is no God, the philosophers. They know there's a God, and they know He's holy and righteous, and they're screaming, Shut up! And they're hiding. They're really just afraid. Because they know if you admit there's a God, what do you have to do? Quit sinning. And that ain't going to be no fun, is it? You've got to live a little differently, don't you? Who wants to do that? They know there's a God. And it's an ungodly fear. They're constantly running. Do you remember Matthew 25, the story of the talents? God gave one man five talents, and he was really good at whatever he did. He brought back five more. I don't know if, how he did it, but he was amazing. And then the other guy got two and he was really good. He wasn't as talented, but he did with what, you know, what he had. He had two, and he brought two back. And then a man was given one talent. And what did he do? He hid that talent. Why? He says, because God, I know you are a hard man. I was afraid, so I went and hid my talent in the ground. That's ungodly fear. Thinking that if you do something for the Lord and step out, he's so angry, there's just no way to please God at all. No, that's ungodly fear, friends. To think that God is not going to be pleased with the talents that you have using it for the Lord. That's an ungodly fear. We have godly fear in Scripture. Hebrews 11 is full of godly fear. And if you remember the story of Noah, which is really good to tell since it's raining right now, Hebrews 11:7, it says, Noah feared God, and by faith he did what? And reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. You know, he did that out of fear of God. Because what happens is when you know God in a saving way, because Jesus Christ, a part of the new covenant, is he puts the fear of God in your heart, what do you do? You want to obey him. And what the fear of God does is it doesn't save you, but it, but it keeps you on the straight and narrow. 
It's what God uses to persevere you. This is why 1 John 4.18, perfect love cast out fear. You know there's no judgment. That's what he's speaking of. You know there's no judgment for your sin. Now you are capable of fearing God. You don't have to fear man anymore. But God puts this in you. And he says part of the new covenant is, I'm going to give you the fear of God. You ever go to McDonald's and it seems like they're always mopping and it says slippery when wet, you know, the floor. We got a sign when you come in. It's going to be a little slippery. So some of you are going to be a little afraid. You're going to be very, very careful, which is very good. Don't slip. No slip and falls. The deacon said, remind them of that. So here it is in the sermon. No slip and falls. Don't slip when you're walking out the door and it's raining. But that fear is a little bit different than when you see caution high voltage. Do you see a little bit of different fear there? In Palo Alto in 2019, a man that's worked on the job for 20 years changing transformers, they were basically laughing at each other, the people on the ground, and the man up in the big bucket changing the transformer out. They were just shooting the breeze with one another, laughing, making jokes, having the best time, changing this transformer. And the man grabbed the wrong tool and created an arc, and, and he died. And Cal OSHA right now is in a big fight with the electric company because OSHA's saying, you know, it's your fault. You didn't have the people there. They're like, dude, the dude was playing around. He didn't understand his job. So they're, they're back and forth. But you understand what happened. He did not fear the way he should have. He, he treated it as a slippery when wet. He treated it as a slip and fall issue instead of high voltage current. And when we're dealing with God, we need to understand who we're fearing. We're fearing the God of the universe. In Jeremiah 5.24, this is what he says. He says, They did not say in their hearts, Let us fear the Lord our God. This is why they sinned. They didn't fear God. So they lived any way they wanted to live. And in Psalm 130, it says, Because you forgive us, therefore we fear you. The fear of God is very fascinating and it reminds me of the priest. The priest in the Old Testament had the authority to pronounce you clean. The priest in the Old Testament had the authority to say that you were clean or unclean. But Jesus Christ actually has the power to make you clean. And I think about the police officers when they say, Stop your car! The police clearly can say, stop, and you're like, okay, you have the authority. But they can't make your car stop. And here comes Jesus. All power and authority have been given to me. This is why we fear him. Because not only does he have the authority to pronounce you not guilty, he has the power to make you clean. This is why we revere and we fear him. And this is something we get in the new covenant, which brings us to the fourth part of the sermon the everlasting covenant of God. Look at verse 40 with me. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. If you remember the new covenant passage, the new covenant passage, Jeremiah teaches that when God says, I will make a new covenant with you, not a covenant like I made with your fathers, one that they continue to break, I will make one that is unbreakable. What God is going to do is going to send his son 
Christ to actually do what you cannot do. He will be punished in your place for your sin. Not only will He be punished in the place for your sin, He will raise again from the dead and the Spirit that raised Him will be sent in a powerful way. You see that in Acts 2. And He will live inside of you and you will now be capable of doing what you couldn't do before. That's the power of the living God that lives inside of you. And it's an everlasting covenant. It's everlasting. When you read through Jeremiah, well, sometimes we see new covenant. Oh, it's all about... Jeremiah calls it the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, the covenant of peace. He calls it many different things. Sometimes we think a new covenant, we're like, whoa, that's amazing. When I got a... I told you the story. I brought an old truck to my wife one day that I got. I said, look at my new truck. She goes, that's not new. <laughs> well, it depends on how you define new, right? <laughs> new doesn't mean it's absolutely new. never seen it before. We've seen God make promises. We've seen him save. New meaning it's going to be different. It's going to be improved. It's going to be better. And what's better is the Holy Spirit empowers us to live differently. Look what else he says here in verse 40. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they might not turn from me. You ever heard those people? I've probably said it before foolishly. I'll put the fear of God in his heart. You can't put the fear of God in someone's heart. That's something God does. Do you remember the, the British monk in AD 400 named Pelagius? He goes into Rome, much like Martin Luther did, and what did he see in Rome? Sin everywhere. He just saw sin everywhere. Remember, Constantine had just made Christianity legal in Rome. No more killing Christians. There was a revival that went through Rome. And it didn't take long before that city turned wicked to the point where eventually it would be overthrown. City of God was written by St. Augustine. There's no way Rome should have been overthrown. But it was. And it was completely destroyed. And part of it was the sin. And Pelagius walks through and he sees all this sin. And what does he do? He blames Augustine. He says, you're teaching these people justification by faith. You're also teaching them in your confessions, grant what thou commandest and commandest what thou wilt. You're basically teaching them that you don't have it within you to keep God's law. And that's making them go and sin. That's exactly what Pelagius accused St. Augustine, and it caused a big war within Christendom. And you have the people who believe in justification by works and faith, and those that believe in justification by faith only. That was the dividing line, because he saw the sin, and he blamed the people. If you would just teach them to be a little more legalistic, and that they have it within them, then they would do what is right. And the truth is, we can't keep God's law without the Spirit. We don't have it in us. We don't have it in us. The fear of God will be put in our hearts from God Himself. This is why when we sin, we go back to the source that saved us in the first place, which is Christ. We go back to the source. We ask the Spirit to help us. You know the Jews struggle with this their whole life? thinking they could earn their salvation, thinking this is the reason we have Ephesians 2 and Galatians, because people really believed you could earn your salvation. And I hear people say, well, is that a Jewish problem? No. 
That's a human problem. We think we can do something, that we bring something to the table, and at the end of the day, we bring nothing to the table. But as Edwards would say, the only thing we bring to the table to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. We need salvation because of our sin. That's what we bring to the table. And what God does is, God is going to put the fear of him in their hearts. In verse 41, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and soul. God is going to do a work in this land. He's going to bring them back. Which brings us to the fifth part of the sermon, the restoration of God. And if you know, if you've been listening to me, I talk about my old boat from 61 that I restored and talk about my old truck from 59. And even my most recent 07 project that I did, I restored the truck to its former beauty. I was so proud. Almost like when you restore something, then you let it go. You're like, ah, it's a blessing to the world. Maybe you've done that with furniture before. You take an old piece of furniture, you sand it down, and you lacquer it. You're like, wow, look at this beauty. It's restored to its former beauty. God likes to restore. Jeremiah felt absolutely stupid for what he did. I can't believe I bought this field. As a matter of fact, I just prophesied that I won't be here for 70 years. I'm old. There's no way I'm actually going to see this actual land. And here God is reassuring Jeremiah that he likes to restore. Look at verse 42. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought you all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money. Deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin and the places about Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and the cities of the hill country, which is north, and the cities of Shephelah and the cities in the Gev all the way south. I will restore their fortunes, declare the Lord. The Lord says, I will restore their fortunes. God is going to prosper the people. Now, I know some of you are saying, oh no, are you going to start preaching Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland? Let me tell you something about Kenneth Copeland and Joel Osteen. They promise, they teach you that if you serve the Lord, God promises you prosperity and healing. And I'm here to tell you, I'll go on record to say Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland are half right. They're half right. You do get prosperity and you do get healing. Just not on this earth. We are to store our treasures in heaven where what? Moths can't come in and corrupt and where rust can't come in and thieves can't come in and steal. We are to store our treasures in heaven. I, I remember when Pastor David first came to our church and he probably doesn't even remember this story. I had a good friend who was a, one, a, a great ruling elder. He had liver disease. And I, I sent him a text almost every day. I'm praying for you. I really wanted the Lord to heal him. Um, he went to Rochester to the Mayo Clinic. It gives you a little bit of hope. I love the place. I'm thinking now I'm, the Lord is going to do a work. And we thought we had 
we thought the Lord provided a liver, but the cancer came back and he wasn't able to get the transplant. And he turns 52, and two months later he goes home to be with the Lord. A great ruling elder, someone who was faithful at Presbytery, showed up to Presbytery, was active. And I've been upset. I've been upset. And I was like, I just wanted him healed. And I'll never forget Pastor Davis said, God answered your prayer, Travis. He's healed. And one day, he'll have his new body. And that really meant a lot to me. Because the reality is, is God will restore. All of us one day will have new bodies. All of our sadness, all of our crying, all of our weeping, God is going to restore this. And it's not going to be on this earth. Most of us will never see that on this earth. But one day, God is going to redeem. Which brings us to our conclusion. If you remember B.B. Warfield and his wife Annie, who had all the potential in the world, and you're like, what is God doing with these people? If you right now, if you've ever heard of Southern Seminary, which is a Baptist seminary, or Asbury, which is somewhat conservative Methodist seminary, or even RTS or Greenville Presbyterian Seminary, all three of those seminaries still hold to the inerrancy of Scripture because of a man named B.B. Warfield. See, when the Germans came in and really ruined Union Seminary and a lot of the seminaries that are liberal, who deny the virgin birth, who, who deny the resurrection, who deny the inerrancy of Scripture, there was one man that could fight the German scholars and manhandle them. And his name was B.B. Warfield. And because he was never really able to leave Princeton, he was able to write and write and write and correspond with those German scholars. See, God had a plan for him the whole time. He wouldn't have been able to do that if he was traveling and having fun. And God has a plan. And God raised that mind up and used it for the glory of the Lord. God hasn't forgotten us. No matter what situation we're in now or we'll be in, God hasn't forgotten us. He's got a plan and he's going to use us. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word.